Welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, people and books that have shaped their lives and work. Imaginal cells are responsible for the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a butterfly, which is also the Greek symbol for the soul. These cells are dormant in the caterpillar, but at a critical point of development, they create the new form and structure which becomes the butterfly. My guest today is Federico Fagin, who has led what he calls four lives as a physicist, engineer, inventor, entrepreneur, and author. He developed the first MOS silicon gate technology at Fairchild in 1968 and designed the world's first microprocessor at Intel in 1971. Federico also founded and led Zilog, Synaptics, and other high-tech companies the Zilog Z80 microprocessor from 1976 and his Z8 microcontroller from 1978 are amazingly still in volume production today. At Synaptics, he pioneered the touchpad in 1994 and the touchscreen in 1999, solutions that have revolutionized the way we interface with our mobile devices. Federico has received many prizes and awards in the United States, Europe and Japan these include the Marconi Prize in 1988, the Kyoto Prize for Advanced Technology in 1997, and in 2009, he was awarded the National Medal of Technology and Innovation by President Barack Obama. In 1996, he was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame, and he's also received many honorary degrees in computer science and electronic engineering. Federico is currently president of the Federico and Elvia Fagin Foundation, a non-profit organization dedicated to the scientific study of consciousness, an interest that has become a passionate full-time activity. In 2019, Federico published his autobiography through Italy's premier book publisher, where it's been a bestseller, and it has just appeared under the title of Silicon in English. So it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast, Federico. And I'm going to start by asking you about a shaping moment in your choice of work. Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here with you and uh, through this uh, interesting conversation. <laughs> My first uh, fundamental decision was uh, after my technical high school, I was 18, and uh, I had several choices of work. And I decided to work for Olivetti, which in those days was a major supplier of office equipment. And uh, in, near Milan, they had a, a research center to develop computers. In fact, they had shortly before, they had announced in, uh, their first mainframe called Elea 9003. At that time, I was interested, uh, though not passionate yet, about computers. And uh, so I chose that direction. Because of that direction, I ended up uh, designing in part 60% and building a small experimental computer, which is unusual for a 19-year-old, which is, mm -hmm. the, you know, the 1961 when I did this. 
I had four technicians working for me and I got that computer to work. And that experience really set me in a direction which led to all the everything that everything else that happened in my life. Of course, you can always find prior decisions that led to that, but this was you know, an explicit decision because I had many choices and I chose to go to Olivetti. Then I went, to, to, I went back to university, I studied physics, but that was a formative experience that really changed my life. And t- tell us a little bit about your model aeroplane, because this, that was a, a great thing that you did when you were only 15. And I, I love the photo in your book. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that, was, uh, that was perhaps even more important of the Olivetti choice, though in that case, there was no choice <laughs> because I fell in love with this model plane uh, when I was 11, uh, seeing it, seeing a model plane fly for the first time. And I, I loved airplanes in those days. And uh, in fact, I, one of my dreams were to become a pilot. And so seeing a toy that fly, to me, it was amazing. I thought that only big planes could fly, not toys. So, so I decided to uh, build myself one model plane. And uh, uh, it, it took about three trials before I got one to fly. But that was also extremely formative for me as an experience because since I didn't have much money, I had to design and build my own planes. I couldn't buy the kits where you, you, know, you assemble and you go through the process of, uh, that is outlined in the plan. I had to invent my way, so to speak, though I bought a book that told me how to build model planes. And so through the guidance of that book and my own you know, imagination, I made, I don't know how many planes, probably of the order of a hundred. Really? <laughs> in, in, my, in my growing up, in my growing up you know, years. Uh, and even, you know, even today, every once in a while, I, I get the urge to, to design and build one, maybe strange one, you know. <laughs> so anyway, so um, so that that was also fundamental, and that was actually what led me to go to a technical high school instead of the school that my father wanted me to go. My father was a teacher, a professor actually, because he was a liberal docente. You know, he was a scholar, wrote forty books, and. Uh, also taught at University of Padua, but but you know he always he always also taught at, at the uh, classical Lycee in uh, in Vicenza, the home, my hometown, and he wrote about uh, idealist philosophers very very much like Schopenhauer, Plotino. He actually translated the Enneads of Plotinus. So my, my father was really uh, very much into philosophy and history. And uh, he wanted me to go to the school that was supposed to be the formative school. Had I done that, I would never have developed the first microprocessor. I would never have had the path that I took because uh, I would have been too late. Those things would have already been invented by somebody else. Because as much as we like to think that our inventions are the first and without us, they would not have happened. I can tell you that all the inventions that I made, they would have happened anyway. How interesting. I mean, I think you're already showing a kind of persistence and creativity at that age. And tell me, how wide was the wingspan of your largest planes? It looked to me really quite wide. 
Well, that, that, that one was probably a meter, a, a meter and 40 centimeters, but my largest one was a little over two meters. That's one plane that I, you know, it was my sort of my capolavoro, we say in Italian, the, 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 my yeah. best work. Uh, yeah. it, it, took, it took me three months to design and build. Yeah, and that was supposed to be, uh, you know, my winning plane on a contest, but I lost it before before the contest. <laughs> it just it just took off and it never came back. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness, what a story! And you there were, there were no there were no radio controls in those days. Well, actually, there were, but they were so cl- clunky that uh, you could only control typically the uh, rudder and that was it. No, no proportional radio controls. Uh, well, that must have been a, a, no, quite a, a bad moment. You know, your, your <laughs> yeah, see, seeing it disappear <laughs> in the sky. <laughs> and you talked about your father um, really so as a mentor in some ways, and we'll come back to Plotinus, uh, but did you have any other influential mentors or teachers at that stage of your life? And if so, what advice did they give that, that stood you in good stead? Uh, actually, at, at that time, uh, I had teachers and, and advisors, but nobody stands out as someone that I could say changed my life in a way or made me turn in one way that was foundational for whatever happened next. I must say that the perhaps the best teacher... Uh, that I had was uh, Ralph Angerman, which was my partner with whom we started Zilog in 1974. We were friends, but then he wanted my job. So because he wanted my job, uh, he started playing some games. And and, and so, you know, it became a struggle for me. Uh, Eventually, uh, he left the company because, you know, I had to ask the board to intervene. And that was a very displeasing thing for me and I didn't understand how, how come what is what, what happened here what have I done you know I could easily identify what he did but I couldn't identify what I did and it, it seemed to me that it takes two to tango or, so you know what did I do and it took a while to realize that it wasn't what I did it was what I did not Reading your book, I picked that one up because I thought it was such an interesting observation uh, that sometimes it's what we don't do that causes the problems. That's right. And, and that, to me, that opened up a Pandora's box, really. And, and it, it, I realized, first of all, I realized that truly I was responsible for what happened to me, good or bad, even if it is easy to actually attribute default, so to speak, to somebody else. And so it was the first time that I took responsibility for my life and for what happened to my life. And that is the the biggest gift that I had from Ralph. So interesting. You don't always think that's the case at the time, but in retrospect, it's extremely valuable. And then let's move on to a a book or books that have shaped your, your life and thinking. But it depends on which stage of your life you're talking about, I suspect. Okay. Of course, yeah, of course. You know, there were many books that were influential. But again, it, it, the only book that I can think of, I think it was Ofstadter, the book uh, Gödel, Escher, and Bach. Oh, yes. I yeah. don't know if you read it. I, I think it, 
came out, yeah, came out in 79, I think. It, it was a book that for the first time allowed me to see reality from multiple lenses as opposed to just as, as physics, because if you read it, you know, reality expressed by physicists is their own view, and then reality expressed by biologists is, is it their, their own view. Everybody is, you know, has a silo, so to speak, of knowledge. But that book was an interdisciplinary book. Uh, it, it, would, it would talk about music and, and uh, art, Asher, and, uh, and mathematics and physics. And, 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 and so it, it, it was a, it, it shaped me from a way of thinking that was sort of parochial, if you want. <laughs> and most importantly, it led me to think about computers and you know, are they are really this book uh, strangely did not talk much about consciousness but it clearly hinted that, that the brain is not really a computer which of course uh, many people tend to think that way and, and so it led me to think clearly about certain things and but most important it awakened in me a, a desire to understand it was broader than before. Before I was seeing things through the lenses of a physicist, basically, uh, without paying too much attention to, to other aspects of reality. And so that was an awakening in some ways, though it was not even close to the awakening that I had later on in life. But, but this was certainly a, a precursor, <laughs> if you want. Interestingly, one of my cleverest pupils, who himself is now a writer, called Harry Bingham, he was reading that, that book when he was 15 and uh, uh -huh. he's an extraordinarily brilliant um, individual and I, I said to him in an essay I marked I said you write as well as Aldous Huxley I hope you will become a writer and he has. Uh -huh. yes. uh, tell us more about your, your awakening this is sort of key moment of insight in relation to the nature of consciousness it's I think what Jeff Kripal would call a flip in some senses in terms of your flip of understanding of reality and consciousness yeah well that that happens uh in 1990 um uh it was uh december was the holiday uh christmas holidays uh i was with my family up in tahoe we had a we had a place there a home there and we were skiing and everything was great and then one night i woke up it was around midnight i was uh I was thirsty, so I got a glass of water. And then I went back to bed, and as I was about to fall asleep, but still quite awake, all of a sudden I feel this unbelievable energy coming out of my chest. Uh, you know, it was a beam, probably I don't know, more than a foot wide, and you know, maybe a foot and a half, and it was coming out like a rush. And it was a rush of love, so powerful, so unbelievable. And, it, you know, it appears as a white, you know, white scintillating beam that was coming out of me. And I was, what's going on, you know, kind of, kind of thing. Uh, and then it exploded. And all of a sudden, everything is made of this energy. Uh, this stuff of uh, white scintillating light that again feels like unbelievable love, a love that I never felt before, like the like. But 
I don't know, you know, 100 dB over. <laughs> it, it, you know, just something impossible to imagine. And as I was observing this uh, white light, all of a sudden, I am that light. Not only that, but my body is vibrating. My physical body is vibrating. I, you know, I, I, everything is vibrating. And then at the same time, I realized that this is what everything is made of. This stuff that feels like love is peaceful, is unbelievably fulfilling. And, and I am it. So I am now the observer of myself with my own viewpoint. And so now I, I, I observe, I'm the whole that observes itself with my viewpoint. And so this was so extraordinary that, you know, I couldn't, you know, basically it changed, it flipped, like you said. <laughs> I didn't know this word before, but it clearly is true. It flipped my viewpoint about who I am about the world completely. Now I am the world observing myself, not somebody that is separate from the world observing something which is not me. It was, I was me observing me. <laughs> what I was observing was the entire existence. So as I said earlier, this changed completely my, my, my viewpoint and, uh, and my viewpoint never returned to the previous viewpoint in the sense that I now know that that is closer to the truth than anything that I knew before about reality. And I think you, you also write that it, it struck you with a force of truth, which I thought was very interesting. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And of course, you know, it was the first uh, experience that you can call spiritual experience, you know, revealing my spiritual nature, because up until that point, I never had such, a, such an experience. I clearly had physical experiences, emotional experiences, mental experiences, but never a spiritual experiences, which is unity. It tells you that you are essentially, you are a part whole. You are, you are both a part and a whole. As crazy my sound, that's what it is. But by the way, Physics, quantum physics is telling the same thing. A particle is a part whole. It is both a particle and a wave, which of course it's a way of the physicists say, in fact, is neither a part or a wall or, or, or a wave, uh, but, but it is a way of expressing something that appears contradictory. And in fact, that interestingly, it takes one back to Plotinus and, and your, your father's interests. Um, and I'll just read you a little passage from uh, Plotinus's theology, which says, the whole is in the whole, and the one is in the whole, and the whole is in the one, and one of them is the whole, and the light which falls on them is infinite. Yeah. So it's quite a complicated sentence, but it just yeah. explains this sort of oneness and partness, what Arthur Kerstler would call a holon, that we are both the part and the whole together. And if you look at it, we are built that way. I mean, uh, you know, each cell contains the genome of the whole that we are. And so each of the organs is each both of our cells contain the whole that we are because it was, it came from the division of the zygote. 
the zygote had the genome and then it divided the, the zygote, which is the fertilized egg, divided and divided and divided. And each division specialized the cell, but at the same time, the cell contained the same genome, the entire genome. So now life is an expression of, of exactly this reality where the, the whole is in parts and the parts are in the whole. And this is exactly the experience, what the ancient Greeks called gnosis, um, that you experience yourself as the whole, even though you are only an element, as it were, or an individual, individualization of that whole. That's right. So, so, so here we have it, you know, just, just, just if you look at it the right way, that's what's going on. Absolutely. And I, I, I think this is the, the emerging picture, which many, many thinkers are now uh, expressing in their, in their different ways and from different disciplines, that there is this deep underlying oneness which connects us uh, and which I think has ethical implications as well. Oh, I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> and how, how does your new understanding or the understanding you've arrived at, how does that influence um, the way you live your life? Well, my life changed. That's why uh, in the book I call it my fourth life, right? <laughs> Basically, the fundamental prejudices that I had that came from materialism and reductionism, which are the, uh, the essence of the, phys the physicalist paradigm. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier that I was trained as a physicist, University of Padua. So my uh, whatever understanding of reality I had that came from religions, uh, Catholic religion in my case, you know, was swept away by a more sensible, what I perceive as to be a more sensible, rational way of looking at reality, which came from, from physics. And so, you know, I was going happily down that path when the awakening happened. <laughs> and the awakening happened, you know, simply said, no, that's wrong. <laughs> that, you know, and, and luckily so, because I was unhappy in those days. I had, I had, listen to the world, I have achieved everything that the world was telling or appeared to tell me that if I achieve all of those goals that were pretty, pretty difficult to achieve goals like becoming independent financially for the rest of my life, uh, having a great family, being healthy, you know, having, being famous. I mean, you know, I had achieved all of that and I was unbelievably unhappy and I didn't know why I was unhappy. I should have been happy. What's wrong with this picture? So, so now I'm happy. I'm happy because I know that I'm doing what I actually came down in this world to do. So how more different can that be than being unhappy, having done everything that the world tells you that if you do, you should be happy. And now having done none of that but having followed my sense the guidance of that awakening now being happy <laughs> well that, uh, that's just wonderful i think it also changed your view on the relative nature of human and artificial intelligence maybe you say a little bit about that well of course i'm still i'm a physicist right so i still want to understand how reality can be so constructed after all physicists have that quest, which is to understand what's real uh, and understand it uh, using rationality and also using intuition. 
So that desire to understand now has brought me to, first of all, to explore my inner life, which before I neglected, explore it, finding how rich that inner life is over about 20 years. That takes, takes me to about 10 years ago or so. And so for, for those 20 years, I had many other experiences, extraordinary experiences of consciousness that reveal many other dimensions of consciousness. The consciousness is, is unbelievably, has incredible number of dimensions. So then about 10 years ago, I decided that that, that was about time to dedicate myself to this study and trying to reconcile science and spirituality, which have always been basically two separate disciplines, like, you know, they cannot talk to each other because spirituality speaks of a world, which is the inner world of experience, which has little to do with the outer world of measurements and relationships that uh, physicists study. So, and of course, uh, the essence of that inner world is consciousness and free will, uh, and the, uh, which many physicists deny their existence. In fact, uh, they believe that consciousness and free, and free will are simply epiphenomena. There is no free will and consciousness is simply, you poor you, <laughs> you know, you think you're conscious, you think that something is real about that, but really no, no, no. Only what you measure is real. And so that mindset has to change. And that mindset, which derives directly from materialism and reductionism, has to change because it will lead us to self-destruction. And I believe it if we pursue that path as we have done. That is how strongly I feel about it because in the model that I now have, in fact, is a theory which I now have, which I have developed with a famous physicist with whom I've been in contact for the last four or five years. And, you know, and, through many discussions and so on, uh, it was able to see my point. And, and now we have, a, we have a theory. This physicist is Giacomo Mauro Tariano, is the head of the theoretical physics groups of the uh, University of Pavia. He is uh, well known in the world of uh, quantum information because he is the one that, and his team that has been able to show that quantum physics derives entirely from quantum information. So quantum information is senior to quantum physics and classical physics and quantum physics is senior to classical physics. And now we say consciousness and free will are senior to quantum information. And so that is a unbelievable statement. And of course it's backed up by a bunch of stuff. So, you know, it's too technical to, you know, to talk, uh, you know, to, to, to express it verbally, unfortunately, but uh, it takes a little bit of math as well. But, but the math is simply, you know, it's, it's not fundamental when it comes to experience because experience transcends mathematics. It is, it is the quantum information that begins to be expressible with math. And that math even needs to be open-ended in the sense that that math must be just like the math of quantum physics, which is probabilistic. 
In other words, that math is simply telling you what you can know. It doesn't tell you what the world is. Classical physics was pretending to tell you how the world is. In other words, classical physics was pretending to describe the ontology. When a, when a, a body moves, the, real, the body is real and it really moves and there is real space and so on and so forth. Well, now we know that quantum classical physics derives from quantum physics and quantum physics is epistemic, not ontological. The ontology is in the experience and is in the knowing. Quantum physics only tells you all that is possible to know about the reality that you experience. Big difference and very un and not understood at all. And I think you would, and you then say that you know, computers can't understand in the same way as, as we understand, and, and, or, or they can't know in that way that you just described, which I think is one of these fundamental distinctions you know, between artificial and human intelligence. Yeah, artificial, now I can say very clearly, right, the distinction, what, what is the distinction? A artificial intelligence is based on classical systems. A computer is a purely classical system based on bits. You cannot go from bits to qubits. You can only go from qubits to bits. And a qubit is an infinite of states where a bit is only two states. As simple as that. You yeah. cannot go up, you, but you can go down. In fact, the qubits are manifestations of who we are because the ontology is in who we are and who we are is not physical in the sense of physics. It's not even quantum information. It is beyond quantum information. It is what creates quantum information. You see, the direction is from vaster to less vast, to less vast, to less vast. And everybody talks about the reductionism Reductionism is about going from parts to the whole, but, but that doesn't work. In classical physics, the, the, there is no whole. A robot made of parts, is, there is no whole that can decide that is independent from the parts. The, the whole that is a robot is simply a name for a bag of parts, and that is and the name is not real, it's not ontology. So it's an aggregation. It's an aggregation. In other words, the description of the parts, the, the complete description of the parts, describe the totality of the system, describe the system. There is nothing more in the system called robot than the parts and their interactions. So the whole, the whole which is a robot is just the sum of the parts. And when, I, when one says sum, it doesn't mean the algebraic sum, of course. It means the, 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 the complete description of the parts and their interactions. That is what the robot does. There is nothing in the robot that can change the, the parts. In fact, a computer, you know, look, we, 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 we are made of parts which are holes, as I said earlier. Therefore, there is a path 
from the whole to the parts. A computer, the transistors, which are the parts of a computer, they have no whole. They contain no information about the whole. You see the difference? Yes. I, a transistor I... is simply a switch. And a computer is made of billions of switches. The switch does not contain any information about the whole. I'm built of 40 trillion cells. Each cells contain the information of the whole in the genome. How more different than that is a computer from a living organism? Well, I think that's a wonderful and clear explanation. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, we're just coming to the end now, um, Federico, and I, I wonder whether you had a favorite quote or a proverb um, that you'd like to share with our listeners. You know, what, what, actually, what actually comes to mind now is perhaps the, the quote that comes closest to the transformation that I went through is uh, Dante's, uh, you know, the, the a verse in, in, the, in Paradise uh, and the, in his Divine Comedy, uh, his uh, L'amor che muove il cielo che muove il sole e l'altre stelle, the love that moves the sun and the other stars. Goodness, that, that's uh, so uh, profound because it links those two aspects of physics and consciousness um, together. In my experience. Mm. And finally, Federico, is there any advice you'd give to your younger self um, from what you've done and where you are at the moment? Actually, no. I am one of those people that says everything that happened in my life had to happen, good and bad. You see, we try to give advice to ourselves uh, to avoid what we consider, what we have judged to be bad in our life. But in fact, even in fact, most of the things that turn into good were things that were bad when they happened. Yeah. <laughs> For example, yeah. I, 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 you know, I told you about uh, my my rift with uh, Ralph, my partner in uh, in my first company. And uh, that turned out to be the greatest, one of the greatest gifts I had. So how, how would I want to change that? Any advice would be, you know, would be directed toward changing something that happened when we were young. No. I, no I, 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 I very much like that response. And I, I was also struck earlier on our, our conversation about the way that you, as it were, were true to your inner self and uh, momentum and impetus, what the Greeks called di the diamond. And, and so you knew um, with all your involvement in the, in the early model airplanes, you knew that that was, that was really what you needed to do. And then your father provided a bit of resistance by trying to get you to go in a different direction, which probably just made you even more determined to go in the direction you knew you had to go in. That's right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but not out of obstinacy, you know, it, there is a difference between you want, you want to do it your way versus you know within yourself at some level that this is really what you want and what you should be doing, and which is, has always been behind me in all major decisions in my life. I must say that's a gift. It's a privilege uh, that, 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 because I recognize that many 
momentous decisions in my life, like, for example, deciding to stay in the US instead of going back to Italy when I, you know, when I came here in the US for the first time, I knew that those were decisions that I had to make, that my future lied in those decisions. And those turned out to be great decisions, but at the same time, you know, even bad decisions then turn out to be, in a sense, good decisions because I learned something from it. Well, I think the other thing that strikes me is, is that you're, you're someone who's really remained true to themselves through this whole process of development, you know, right at the beginning and then through your awakening into what you're doing now. And I think there's, there's a great satisfaction in that. Well, that, that's why I'm saying, you know, I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm happy, basically. You know, I, I know that I'm doing what I came here to do, as I said earlier, you know. And the, and the happiness, it doesn't mean that there aren't things that occasionally bother me, like, uh, you know, <laughs> like something that I wouldn't want to, you know, to, to have to go through, for example. But there is nothing deeper that bothers me where the, the source of my unhappiness when I, 30 years ago, or 32, 35 years ago, that in, in some way was resolved by the awakening experience. But that, what, what, that, what bothered me at that time was much deeper. I felt it like, you know, like a foundational thing that was bothering me, something core, in, at the core of me, not something that you can you know, kind of brush off. It, I, I couldn't brush it off because again, for the same honesty toward myself and toward my own feelings, I could not make it shut up. You know, you, you cannot shut up the best of you. You have to listen to the best of you. So you asked me before, you know, what is the best advice that you can give? I didn't, I couldn't come up with, with a good idea. Now I can tell you, listen, listen to the deepest part of yourself and listen again to the deepest part of yourself, because they have the answer that you're seeking. Federico, thank you so much. Um, that's a, a truly inspiring interview and conversation that we've had. And I just remind listeners that your new book is Silicon uh, and that it's available um, on a website that we will put onto the show notes. Um, so uh, wonderful to be able to speak with you. And thank you so much. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure. 